Morning, church. So, kids, those of you that are in here right now, have you ever been so tired where you just needed mom and dad to carry you to bed? You know, you just feel like, I can't get up. But sometimes you just, you just want to lay there and you want mom and dad to carry you, right? Because if you're tired or not tired. When I was a kid, I did that all the way until my dad said, I'm not carrying you anymore. You're too big, okay? So, you know, as we follow Jesus, we can feel at times very troubled and discouraged. The world doesn't believe in Jesus. Those outside of a relationship with him are hostile. They're against Jesus. And so we can feel very troubled. We can feel very weak and tired. But you know what the encouraging thing is? Is like the parent that picks us up. The Holy Spirit actually helps us. And how does the Holy Spirit help us? Well, in our weaknesses and in our, when we're feeling like we're laying on the couch, so to speak, the Holy Spirit actually prays for you. And so here's the question. You know, last week Dan said, if you answer this question, you get a chocolate. This week, if you answer the question, I don't know what you get, but just come, <laughs> come ask me. Or does that, no, but but here, here's the question. Here's what I want you to So how does God help us in our weakness? We talked about praying, but what does that mean when we feel weak and we feel troubled and we feel tired? How does God help us? And, and parents, um, this is what I want to encourage you to do. So this is not just like a little cute, you know, Sesame Street hour. Your job is to be the, and grandparents in here, um, I, don't, I don't get to preach, so this is my moment. You're, you, you are the primary disciplers of your kids, okay? So, so we, don't, we believe in doing church as a family together, and so this is a great opportunity for you to say, yeah, think of that question. How does exactly does God help us in our troubles and in our weaknesses? And then you can engage with your child afterwards, just have a, a wonderful time with that. So kids... Be thinking about how does God help us in our weaknesses, okay? There you go. All right. And now we're going to have a time of Bible reading. So please open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. What a glorious chapter that is, hey? Um, Lisa's going to take us away for Bible reading. Psalm, Psalm, yeah. Yeah, the first one is from Psalm. The Psalm would look up for you, sorry. It is Psalm 88, verses 1 to 7. And then the next one will be from Romans 8. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my, li my life draws near to Shoal. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep, your wrath lies heavy on me, and, your, and you overwhelm me with your, all your waves. And let's go to Romans 8, 26 to 30. 
Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches hearts, and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Lisa, and good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Great to see you face to face. And uh, for those of you who are on the live stream as well, we miss you, um, especially if you're prevented from joining us at the moment for health reasons. Uh, hope to see you soon. Uh, we're going to pray as we come into this really encouraging text from Romans this morning. Oh, dear Lord God, uh, we've, we've, sung, we've heard sung this morning, How Great Thou Art. You are great. Lord, you are so high above us, so far above us, in a category of your own, the creator God and alone our saviour. And so, Lord, we appeal to you now. Please speak to us through your word. What we know about you, we can only know by you revealing it to us. And so, Lord, please, in the grace and power and mercy of your Holy Spirit, speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to be uh, very vulnerable with you this morning. I'm actually going to share with you the, uh, the first album that I bought with my own money. And uh, yeah, you're right to laugh. Um, I need to make sure this is actually a safe space for me to do this this morning. <laughs> is this confidential okay? It doesn't go beyond the room. We've got two friends with us this morning who could take it beyond this room. Please don't. Uh, the, uh, the first album I ever bought with my own money was by a band called... Hanson, it was called the Mbop Collection. <laughs> this was, uh, I was 11 years old. This was back in 1999. It was a different time. Okay, this is how men wore their hair back then. Uh, and uh, look, I loved almost every song on this album. Uh, it had Mbop, of course, if you remember that one. It had Mbop the long version, uh, which is what I mostly listened to. Uh, so I loved almost every song, except for one song, which was a song called Two Tears. And if you can't guess from the, uh, the very subtle title, this is a, a sad song. And uh, look, it had a few lyrics in it, which, uh, you know, were pretty average. It, uh, for me, as, uh, as an 11-year-old, I didn't want to listen to the sad songs. So, of course, on my Discman, when that one came up, skip. Skip over that one. And uh, look, you might find songs like that on, uh, on lots of different albums, or if you have a favourite Spotify playlist or something. There's always the sad song. I call it kind of the bummer song, right? Ah, oh, it's a bummer. Skip over that one. Psalm 88 is the bummer psalm, right? The one that we had read for us just a moment ago by Lisa. Um, when we got to the end of it, Sky leaned over, she said to me, and on that note, right, it's just a sad psalm. Listen to this, right? God, I cry out to you day and night. 
My soul is full of troubles. I'm going down to the grave. I have no strength. It's like you don't remember me anymore. Right, the bummer psalm. And in fact, uh, at the moment, we're going through the psalms in our daily Bible reading plan, and many of the psalms evoke these sorts of feelings. Anxiety, depression, deep sadness, at times hopelessness, and perhaps even a feeling that God is distant, right? And we might be tempted to skip over texts like this, like I did with my Hanson album. Skip the bummer song. Skip the bummer psalm. But actually... This psalm is a perfect introduction to what we're looking at today in the book of Romans. If you've got your Bible there, open up to Romans 8. We're coming in at verse 26. And here's why I say that psalm is the perfect introduction. It's because if there's one word that summarizes Psalm 88, the bummer psalm, and if we're honest, one word that summarizes how many of us have been feeling lately, It's a word here in verse 26. Do you see it? It's the word weakness. Weakness. This is what the author of Psalm 88 was obviously feeling as he said, I cry out to God and my soul is full of troubles and it's like you don't remember me anymore. And like I said, if we're honest, some of us have been feeling this way in recent times. I mean, think about what we've faced over the last couple of years. Multiple lockdowns isolation that goes with that. We literally had to close the doors of this building and not let anyone in. So we as a church could not physically gather for months on end. And the more I talk with some of you guys, I've talked with you throughout lockdown and afterwards, the more the picture actually becomes quite clear to me as one of your pastors, this has taken its toll. This has been a really difficult time for a bunch of us. And if I'm actually vulnerable with you for a moment... It's been difficult for me. I've dealt with the isolation. I've dealt with the hard work that's come with with all of this. Uh, There's been stuff as well that's just bubbled up for me over this time. Maybe you found the same thing. Um, Some of you know my story here, but I've actually faced pretty serious anxiety at times over the last couple of years. It's been one of the toughest times of my life. At times I've faced deep depression. And look, I'm doing a lot better right now, but it's been tough. I know for many of you, it's been the same thing. Uh, Maybe it's been tough on your marriage. It's been tough on your uh, family. Maybe it's just been tough on your mental health. Maybe it's been tough on your faith. Like maybe this has really taken its toll in terms of your walk with Jesus. It it just feels stale at the moment. You feel weak in your walk with Jesus. It's hard to pray. It's hard to read your Bible. In fact, over this time, this is the sort of time when people walk away from Jesus. Right? Like, I've seen it, people that I know, recently. And so maybe as we sort of come out of lockdown, this isn't the time of, like, celebration, Freedom Day and all that stuff they talk about. This actually feels like a time of weakness for you. And maybe perhaps you're wondering if you feel a bit like me or a bit like the guy from Psalm 88, how is it that I'm going to make it through this time? Or in other times of weakness that you think about in your life, how is it, what do I need to do to make it through this? And maybe even more seriously, what do I need to do in order to remain a Christian through this? Because people walk away from Jesus in times like this. What do I need to do to stay a Christian? Well, in today's passage in Romans 8, we're going to find out that's actually the wrong question. It's 
not the first question to ask, what do I do? Actually, the first question to ask is, what does God do? What does God do in our times of weakness? What does he do to make sure that we will come through it? And what does he do to make sure that we will remain a Christian? That's what we're going to see here in Romans 8, 26 to 30. And the first thing that we're going to see is that God himself intercedes for the weak. God himself intercedes for the weak. Take a look in your Bibles, verse 26. Here's what it says. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. See, when we feel the kind of weakness that I've described already this morning, God promises help. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Because there are literally times when we don't know what to pray for. Have you faced that before? Because you don't know what to pray for. Maybe it is that you sit down and you just, you're unsure what it is. What's the right thing to pray? What's God's will for me to pray here? Maybe it's actually more serious than that. You're sitting down, you feel so weak that the words won't even come out. I've faced that. I've faced that over the past couple of years. It's, it's like you're speaking to the wind. And I know that might seem like a, a weird thing for a pastor to admit saying, like, it feels like I'm praying and God's not there. But actually, there are many faithful and even famous Christians across history that have felt this way at times in their life. One of them is this guy. Charles Spurgeon, uh, he's one of the most famous preachers, probably one of the best Bible preachers that has ever lived. And I just want you to listen to what he says. That at times in his life, he said, I could say with Job, my soul chooseth strangling rather than life. He's quoting Job chapter 7 there. I could readily enough have laid violent hands upon myself to escape from my misery of spirit. Do you hear there? What this famous preacher is saying. He's saying at times I felt so weak, so depressed that I wanted to take my life. And then he'd try to pray and listen to what happened for him. He says, how can I pray? My mind wanders. I chatter like a crane. I roar like a beast in pain. I moan in the brokenness of my heart, but oh my God, I know not what it is my inmost spirit needs. Or if I know it, I know not how to frame my petition aright before thee. It's like, I don't know what's right to pray. I'm so dismayed that I actually don't know, God, what you want me to say. And he goes further. I know not how to open my lips in thy majestic presence. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. My spiritual distress robs me of the power to pour out my heart before my God. I wonder if you faced times like that. And you can hear the two problems that Spurgeon faces there. Firstly, that he didn't quite know what to pray in these times. But secondly, that the words just wouldn't come out. He was so dismayed, so, dis so depressed that he couldn't actually pray. And I want you to take encouragement from that. If you're a Christian and you face times like this, you have good friends <laughs> in your company, Right? Some of the most famous and faithful Christians have felt this way and have found times of deep weakness when praying feels impossible. And in those times, here we have the promise in Romans 8.26 that God promises to do 
the work. Again, verse 26, there are times when we do not know what to pray, and indeed perhaps we cannot, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Listen to what that's saying. The Spirit himself prays for you in your weakest moments. God the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And I do just want to clarify something about what that doesn't mean for a moment. And if you're not a Christian, you're here this morning, very glad that you're here, glad that we can open the Bible with you, but this is going to sound like gobbledygook for a moment, okay? Here's what this doesn't mean. This is not talking about speaking in tongues. And I know that some of you might hear it that way, perhaps because you've had that experience, like you've, you've had a time, you've been trying to pray, and you didn't know what to pray, and so then uh, you, you've had an experience where you've, you've started speaking in like an indecipherable language, and, and you hear a verse like this, and you go, oh, that's it, that's the groanings too deep for words, right? But that's not what this is talking about, because firstly, who is it here in this verse that is groaning in this wordless way? Is it us, or is it the Spirit? Take a look. Who is it? Is it us or the Spirit? The Spirit, right? It's not us. So it's not a sound that we make. It's not talking about speaking in tongues. And secondly, the, uh, that, that phrase, too deep for words, actually more literally is, is wordless, with wordless groans. So probably more likely this isn't a sound at all. It's actually the Spirit interceding for us in a way that's mysterious, that, that we actually can't see. It's something in the inner life of God. That happens. Okay, so, so just to clarify, this isn't talking about speaking in tongues. It's talking about the Spirit uh, interceding for us with His groanings. And in fact, that's the point. It's that in our weakest moments, God does the work. He's the one helping us. In fact, in those moments, He's the only one that can help us. Take a look at verse 27. This is what makes the Spirit uniquely qualified to intercede for us. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, it's probably a bit of a confusing tongue twister of a verse, right? But let, me, let me just give you a bit of an illustration. Uh, my wife and I, Skye, uh, we, we've been married now for about three years. And, uh, you know, of course, as the months have gone on, uh, I've gotten to know her better and she's gotten to know me better. I've, I've sort of gotten to know what makes her tick, uh, gotten to know more what's on her mind and, and what she's feeling at any particular moment. Or so I think, right? It turns out that often actually I'm quite wrong. And uh, I'll give you like, this is, this is kind of a real-ish sort of interaction. It's representative of the kind of interactions that we have. Um, I'll notice that there's a look on Skye's face. And she said it's okay for me to throw her under the bus, just so you know, okay? So I'll notice that there's a, a look on Skye's face and I'll be thinking, oh, have I done something wrong? Or, or is, is something going on there? And I'll, I'll go up and you know, I'll tiptoe over. You know, hey, honey, is, is everything okay? And uh, she'll go, oh, yeah, everything's fine. I was just thinking about like, how you, you would explain the concept of CGI to a caveman. And these are the sort of things that go through Sky's mind. Okay? And I have no idea. <laughs> I think I know, but I don't. In fact, uh, in reality, we actually don't have access to the inner life or the mind of any other person. It doesn't matter if you've been married for three years or 30 years or, or whatever, right? We don't have access to what's in the mind of someone else, only what they choose to reveal to us. But it's different for God. 
says here in verse 27, he's the one who searches hearts. He actually does know what's in here and what's up here at any given moment. If you're not a Christian, take that to heart. The Lord knows what is in your heart and in your mind. Be careful with that knowledge. The Lord knows all things. But the point actually goes a little bit further. It's not just that God knows what's in our hearts and minds. The claim here is that God the Father actually knows what is in the mind of God the Holy Spirit, which is huge. Because listen to this from Romans chapter 11, verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? It's a rhetorical question, right? None of us have been. None of us know, well, I don't even know what's in the, the mind of my wife. How can I claim to know what's in the mind of the infinite God being a finite creature? I, I can't. How can I teach God anything? How could I be his counsellor? And yet, since God the Father and God the Holy Spirit both share divinity, they both share Godhood, then of course God the Father knows what's in the mind of God the Spirit. And that's made doubly true because, as it says here, the Spirit always does the will of God. God the Father always knows what's in the mind of God the Spirit because God the Spirit is always wanting to do the will of the Father. Do you hear what I'm saying there? The claim here is that the triune God, the God who is Trinity, God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, are always in perfect unity with one another, always doing the will of the Father. And so here's what that means for you. When you are at your weakest moments, if you trust in this God and you find that you just cannot pray, then this triune God who is always united in doing his will is himself praying for you. He is covering you in a way that only God can do. See, in your weakest moments, God does the work. And that is so crucial to know. Because in those times when we're at our weakest and we can't pray, the temptation is actually to work harder. Right? It's kind of like if you've been locked out of your email account, right? You just can't remember your password. And so what do you do? You start like just changing a letter at a time. You put a capital at the start, you put an exclamation mark at the end. You've got no idea what it is, right? You keep trying, but it's not gonna work. You have to click forgot password at one point and just admit defeat. <laughs> right? The key when we're at our weakest moments, when there's just nothing left in the tank and we are so spiritually dry and perhaps depressed, anxious, is not to try and find, well, well what's, what's exactly the right thing that like, God wants me to say that's going to unlock this and suddenly fix my circumstances? That's not it. It's actually in those moments admitting, God, I, I need your help. I need to know simply that you're upholding me. I need to know simply that I'm in the palm of your hand, triune God, who is interceding for me in this moment. I have faced times like that over the last couple of years, and I have known the faithfulness of God in those moments. What about you? Do you know the faithfulness of God in your weakest moments? Know that he intercedes for you if you are trusting in Jesus. God himself intercedes for us. That's the first truth we need to see in our weakest moments. But there's more that we need to see. Because I raise the question, you know, how do we get through this when we just can't pray? But there's also the question, how can I know that I'm going to stay a Christian through these times? Because in our weakest moments, those are the times when people walk away from Jesus. 
How can I know that I'm going to remain a Christian? Well, the second truth we're going to see is that God himself secures our salvation. Just as he himself intercedes for us and does the work when we can't pray, he himself secures our salvation. Look at verse 28. Probably this is the most famous verse in Romans. And uh, our brother Wayne came and, um, and unpacked this for us back aeons ago before lockdown. Right? So we're not going to go through it in heaps of detail, but look at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, what an encouraging verse. What an encouraging truth. Um, it is possible to misunderstand this truth. And again, our brother Wayne helped us see that a couple of months ago. Uh, but just to quickly highlight two things. Uh, first, uh, this promise of, of all things working together for good isn't for everyone. You notice that there? It's for a particular people. It's for those who love God and who have been called according to his purpose. And so uh, if you're not a Christian, if you actually aren't someone who has been saved by Jesus, you've trusted in his death and resurrection for you, uh, where he has taken the, gut, the, the, the judgment of God on your behalf, and he has taken away your sins so that you are now free to love God. If that's not you, then this promise actually does not yet apply to you. This promise for all things working together for good. Right? But if you are in Christ, uh, you are someone who, as we'll see in a moment, has been called by God uh, and you are now free to obey and love him, then there is a promise for you here. It's for a particular people. But second, also, this promise is about a particular good. It's not just in general good things. Right? And this is actually the biggest thing that, that's, that people misunderstand about this verse. Okay? Because uh, perhaps what we do is we, we hear, oh yeah, all things work together for good, and we, we think something like, oh, what that means is, in the suffering of my life, when something bad happens, then, well, God allows that so he can give me something better in this life. Right? Like, kind of, oh man, I'm, I'm, what a bummer, I'm so sorry to hear that you lost your job. But Romans 8.28, God's got a better job for you. Higher paying, more secure. Right? Or, oh, so sorry to hear that you broke up. What a bummer. But Romans 8.28, God's got a better partner in store for you. Right? Now, that's not what this verse is saying. <laughs> There's a particular good in mind. Because even though we might think that, oh, the better job, the better relationship, whatever, that that's what's good for us, God knows better. Who knows the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? He's the one who knows what's truly good. And so actually what he's committed to is our ultimate good. Uh, literally in this verse, it's the good. All things work out for the good. And what is that particular good that God promises us? Well, think about what we've seen in Romans 8 over the last couple of weeks. Come back to verse 18, where Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, God doesn't promise that we'll be taken out of suffering in this life. He doesn't promise that. In fact, uh, if you lose a job, it might have been the best job that you were ever going to have in your life. If you break up, it might have been, in fact, the last relationship that you're ever going to have, or whatever, right? He does not promise that we will be spared from suffering. In fact, 
He promises that those of us who are in Christ Jesus will face suffering for being in Christ Jesus. But what he says here is that the suffering we face will not be worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. And that glory is the day when we will finally enter God's coming kingdom because we trust in God's coming King, Jesus Christ. Right? Finally, we will have no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain, no more shame. We will be face to face with God, living with Him and His people forever. That's the glory that we're waiting for. And that glory is like a boulder on the scale compared to the featherweight of suffering. That is the good to which God is committed. What he says is, for my particular people, those who are called and who love me, who trust in Jesus Christ, these people will experience this good. They will enter my coming kingdom, and that is what he's committed to, our final salvation. But how do we know that he's committed to that? How do we know that it's going to happen? Especially in our weakest moments, when we feel like, well, I just, I'm really struggling to trust Jesus at the moment. I'm feeling spiritually dry. I'm feeling like I'm not going to make it to that day. How do we know that we will? God Himself secures our salvation. That's what verse 29 begins to unpack. And I want you just to notice here in verse 29 and verse 30. There is a word that's repeated. Take a look at it. Look in your Bible, verse 29 and verse 30. There is a word that's repeated. Do you see it there? It's the word He. He. It's talking about God, the one who's acting here. And each time the word He is used, it's paired with a verb. In case you don't like English teachers and you want to forget English class, a verb is an action word. So God, he, is acting. And what I want to do here is just read out to you each of these verbs, each of these action words paired with the word he. Okay, now Just listen to this. Those he foreknew, he predestined. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. Those are each of the verbs, the action words in this section. And what do you notice about that? It's sort of a chain, isn't it? If you have been foreknown by God, then you will be predestined, you will be called, you will be justified, you will be glorified. So if the first is true, the last is true. This is sometimes called the golden chain of Romans, all right? This little section. So you can see there that God, the one acting, He is the one who secures that work from beginning to end for someone. That's the point. God Himself secures our salvation. But then we do have to ask, what does each of them mean? Because probably you heard a couple of those words and you went, what does that mean that God foreknew us or He predestined us? Right? And we don't have time to go through all the nuts and bolts of that this morning. Instead, what I'm going to do is pull the pin off the grenade and throw it to you and it'll all be okay. All right? <laughs> it will be. We'll get the gist of it. And uh, if you've got questions, you come talk to me afterwards, all right? I just want to go through each of these words quickly. So, for new, for new. Um, uh, in one sense, the word is obvious, right? For meaning before and no meaning no, so knowing beforehand. And we might think what that means is something like, 
God looks down eternity, he looks across time, and he sort of goes, oh, there we go, there's, there's Lisa, okay. And, uh, and Lisa, sorry, Lisa, uh, is going to choose me using her free will. She's going to choose me uh, and, and choose to trust in Christ. And so, like, I, I know ahead of time that's what she's going to do, okay? And so, on the basis of me knowing that God says, on the basis of me knowing that Lisa's going to choose me, I'll make sure that she's saved. Now, in that illustration, whose choice matters? Lisa's, right? Because God, God foreknows, he looks down and sees that that's what he's going to do, and then he, acts, he responds. Now, uh, it might be tempting to think of that word in this way, but that's actually just not the way that the Bible tends to use this word. That's the way that perhaps we think about it in English, but it, it isn't used that way. For example, across the Old Testament, what you see is the word for new actually means something like, like, you know, the word know in terms of I really know someone. I'm actually in relationship with that person. I'm actually choosing to be in relationship with them. That's a biblical sense of the word know, particularly in the Old Testament. For example, in Amos 3.2, it's got a couple of references here. Uh, you only, God says to Israel, you only have I known, or foreknown is actually the word. You only have I foreknown of all the families of the earth. Or, or this one here, Jeremiah 1.5, he says to Jeremiah the prophet, before I formed you in the womb, I literally foreknew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, uh, these verses are clearly saying more than just knowing that someone would end up believing in him or following him, right? They're saying more than, um, for example, that, that oh yeah, you know, Israel would end up becoming, choosing to become my people, or that Isaiah would kind of end up becoming a prophet. No, it's actually God saying, I'm appointing you, Israel, as my people. I'm choosing to enter a relationship with you before you even exist. And Jeremiah, before you were born, I'm choosing you to be my prophet. Do you see that? In fact, across the New Testament, this word for new is used six times. Four of those times it's used in exactly the same way. One of those is here. So for God to foreknow someone is actually to choose to be in relationship with them. All right? So there's the first link of the chain. That's what that word means. And those who God chooses for relationship, it says, are predestined. And again, scary word, okay? It gets a bad rap sometimes amongst some Christians, uh, but really, predestined just means given a destiny beforehand, right? Predestiny. And what's the destiny that are given to those who God chooses for relationship? Well, the verse actually just tells us. It's really very easy. Look at verse 29. What's it say? It says that he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So God's destiny for his chosen people is just simply that they become like Jesus. That's what he chooses them for. It's they'd become like his son, that they'd learn to, to live like Jesus and love like Jesus and at times suffer like Jesus and also be glorified with Jesus, raised to new life with him in the resurrection age. Right? And the, the result of this is, as you see, Jesus gets the glory. He would be the firstborn among many brothers. That's what that means, that Jesus would be made much of. So the God that, those that God foreknew, he predestined to become like his son. And those that he predestined to become like Jesus, he, what's the next one? He calls. He calls. Which in a sense, God calls or invites everyone to come to him, right? 
in a sense. Uh, there's this invitation that goes out in the gospel to everyone. Uh, but, but the call of God here is more than just an invitation. I'll explain why in a moment. The call of God here is actually a call that creates an effect. Uh, the theological language around this is effectual call, call that creates an effect. Here's the kind of call that it is. Put it this way. If you're a parent, and let's say you, you've got a, a young child you know, that, that runs off and absconds from time to time, and you, you're there at a busy intersection, and suddenly, when your head is turned, your kid just takes off for the road, right? Now, when you call out to that kid, you're not just inviting them to come back to you, are you? <laughs> like, oh, gee, please come back, I hope. You know, no, actually what you're doing is you're calling out, you're yelling, and then you're grabbing and you're yanking them back from the road, right? It's the kind of call that, that saves a life. That's the kind of call of God that's being talked about here, an effectual call. A call that doesn't just invite, but invites and saves. And the reason that I believe it's that kind of call is because look what happens to everyone who's called. Everyone who's called is also justified. It's not just an invitation, otherwise everyone who's invited is saved. And we know that's not the case because plenty of people hear the gospel and aren't saved. Actually, What's talking about here is the effectual call of God, whereby when you hear the gospel at some point in your life, something happens in you. God the Holy Spirit actually regenerates you, opens your eyes, opens your heart to see the truth of the gospel and believe it. That's the effectual call of God. And it's the reason that any one of us is a Christian. None of us are smart enough. None of us are wise enough. The, the message of the gospel is foolishness, says Paul in Corinthians. It's only by the power of the Spirit effectually calling us to come and trust in Jesus. And on those grounds, we're justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. It's actually a legal term. We're declared innocent. Through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are spared from the coming judgment of God, and it is made just as if I'd never sinned. Declared innocent, declared righteous, declared fit for God's coming kingdom. What a wonderful truth. And I know this is all... Fairly hard to grab a hold of because like, what I'm talking about here is, is that if that's you, if you're justified, then that's because God effectually called you. right? He yanked you back from the road to hell. And he called you because he predestined you to become like his son and he predestined you because he foreknew you, chose you for a relationship. And that might be a little bit hard to actually get your head around because it sounds like, well, my choice doesn't matter, Right? It sounds like I don't actually make a choice in the whole thing. It's just God. Well, actually, that's kind of the point. God himself secures our salvation. We do make a real choice. Maybe you could put it this way. It's like if, if someone is, is coming, let's say, to heaven or to the new creation. Let's just imagine there's a big gate, right? And this is the gate into heaven, the gate into God's new creation. And above the gate, it says, whoever so wills to come may come. Right? There's the invitation. Whoever wills, whoever wants to trust in Jesus, enter the gate. And so you make a choice. Do I trust in Jesus? Do I repent of my sin? Do I trust in him alone for my forgiveness? Yes, okay, I walk through the gate. But then imagine as you walk through the gate, you turn around, you look at the other side of the gate and there are some other words written over the top. It says, chosen before the foundation of the world. Not because you walk through the gate. Actually, you walk through the gate because you were chosen before the foundation of the world. But they're two sides of the same coin, do you see? From our perspective, we do make a real choice for which we are held morally responsible by the living God. But 
The only reason we make a choice at all is because he first chose us. And in fact, that is a wonderful good truth because it means that God himself secures our salvation. And here's why that's so important to know in our weakest moments. It's because if you were foreknown, predestined, called and justified, then it means you will be glorified. The sufferings of this age are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us, right? You will make it. <laughs> you will make it into God's coming kingdom. He will bring you home. In fact, as you may notice, the word glorified there is not in future tense, right? Will be glorified. I've been using it that way, but actually in the scriptures, it's past tense. Was glorified. Because the future is so certain from God's point of view that you may as well talk about it as the past. What a wonderful truth. God himself will make sure that those he foreknew and predestined and called and justified by faith in Jesus will be glorified. They will make it. In our weakest moments, that's what we need to know. When our faith is just hanging in there and it's faltering, when we're finding it hard to trust in Jesus, when we really lack the assurance that we're a Christian, we need to know that God himself secures our salvation. And I just want to finish here with the words again of Charles Spurgeon, the one who faced real depression, the one who faced the kind of times that we've been talking about today, the one who at times didn't know how to pray. Listen to what he says about those who God saves. He says, Many will target them, but none shall snatch them away. The devil will give many a horrible tug and pull to get them away. But he shall never take them out of the great shepherd's hand. Their old friends and the memory of their old sins will come and tug at them very hard and very cunningly. But the Saviour says, No one can snatch them out of my hand. So first, here is their security. They are in his hand. That is, in his possession. And he clutches them as a man holds something in his hand and says, It is mine. And so he concludes... The man who knows that his eternal future is secured by the unfailing grace of God may forever praise the Lord who has given him life. Friends, what a faithful saviour we have in Jesus Christ. God himself secures our salvation. And that's the reason that I'm still going to wake up a Christian tomorrow. And when all of this COVID business is done, and in 10 years and in 20 years, God willing, Sometimes, literally, that's all we can hang on to. And so this morning, if you're just hanging in there, or you've come off a time where you're just hanging in there, know that in your weakness, God does the work. God himself intercedes for you in your weakness when you find it so hard to pray. Keep praying, but know that God intercedes for you. And when you lack the assurance of your salvation, Know that God secures your salvation. Keep praying, keep gathering, keep reading the scriptures, but know that he is the one who will bring you through this and he's the one who will bring you home. Amen? Let's pray.